In his famous work, Christianity and Liberalism, uh, J. Gresham Machen uh, wrote the following. He said, it's sometimes said that although one way of salvation is by means of acceptance of the gospel, there may be uh, other ways. But, he says, this method of meeting the objection of salvation through the death of Christ on the cross relinquishes one of the things that are most obviously characteristic of the Christian message. Namely, its exclusiveness. He goes on to say, Christianity demands an absolute, exclusive devotion. All other saviors, it insists, must be deserted for one Lord. Salvation, in other words, is not merely through Christ but it is only through Christ. In that little word only, he says, lay all the offense. Now in reflecting on Machen's work or that larger work of the book, uh, Carl Truman wrote the following. He said, indeed, one would have to concede that the Christian who has not at some point struggled with ter the, the terrible awesomeness of this doctrine has probably never thought about it at any depth. It is, he says, it is horrifying to think that Christianity is the only way to salvation. But, he says, belief in this point is ultimately a question of biblical authority. If we take the Bible seriously, then our consciences are bound to the texts it contains, however difficult some of those texts may be to accept. Today, in the midst of our pluralistic and syncretistic culture that promotes this uh, ecumenism among world religion, religions, uh, those who believe in the exclusive claims of Christianity in regard to uh, salvation are considered arrogant and intolerant and abrasive and hostile and judgmental and bigoted and archaic. And that's believed to be so because to do so purports not only the existence of, but the apprehension and, uh, uh, and the ability to apprehend and appraise absolute truth that denounces all other religious faith and practice outside of itself. As a matter of fact, to maintain the exclusive claims of Christianity which really is nothing more than the exclusive claims of Christ Himself, uh, is no longer considered simply to be wrong. It's actually considered to be immoral and evil. And unfortunately, rather than continue in the words of Dr. Truman to take the Bible seriously and, and bind their consciences to the texts it contains, no matter how difficult those texts may be, there are many Christians today and believers, professing believers and churches who are acquiescing to the culture. 
and even catering to its demands for a more palatable message delivered by a more gentle, milder, and more inclusive Jesus. And that message says, the message they desire that they want Him to preach and proclaim is that all roads lead to heaven and that love wins and that everyone will be saved. But in so doing, in so doing, they jettison biblical doctrines regarding God, man, sin, Christ, salvation. And either have to eliminate or alter, at best, texts like ours tonight. The text is difficult. The text is clear, but, but it's not all gloom and doom because not only does Christ speak of the exclusivity of salvation in this text, He also speaks of the inclusivity of salvation in this text. And he also speaks of the antinomy of salvation in this text. So those are our three points tonight that we'll walk through. We're going to look at the exclusivity, the inclusivity, and the antinomy of salvation. And as is our custom before we begin, let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless our time. Uh, Father, would you by uh, your Spirit grant power to the preaching of your Word? Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Grant us all the ability... Uh, to hear and to apprehend and to praise the, uh, Christ and His gospel. Awaken our attention and, and convict us and challenge us. And then and please refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. I am weak, as always, weak and needy uh, to this task uh, to which you've called me. So. I need your support and strength and the filling of your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace and do something good for, um, for your people, for the sake of Christ and His church. And so help me to communicate clearly and with fervency and grace. And I pray these things in, in His name. Amen and amen. Well, if you've been with us, and even if you haven't, uh, J- Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem. He has been on this journey for some time, and, and as He... As he goes, the crowds continue to develop. They continue to grow and to walk along with him. And as he makes his way to the different towns and villages on the way, he continues to teach. And as you can imagine, what he's been teaching, the things that he's been saying in regards to listening to him and doing what he says, and and in regards to judgment and repentance and uh, the fruit of repentance and and his, his future coming and the growth of the kingdom... It elicits questions from those who are following. They can't just follow along without... They've been prompted to ask those questions, and we've seen one already. The question tonight that comes from the crowd very simply says this. The question is, Lord, will those who are saved be few? It could be asked any number of ways. We've heard these questions probably asked of us in conversations that we've had with others, or we may have even asked them ourselves, Lord, who all will be saved? Or, Lord, how many will be saved? Or maybe, Lord, will everyone be saved? 
And it makes sense. The, the question actually makes sense in, in the text because the common belief at the time was that not many were going to be saved. There were only going to be a few, and that few, of course, included all of ethnic Israel, except for the nefarious ones, right? Those, the murderers, and, and then except for those who uh, didn't believe in the resurrection and, and those who uh, didn't believe that the law had come down from heaven, and there were two or three other, uh, other kind of qualifiers there. And it definitely, that, those few definitely weren't going to include Samaritans and Gentiles. Uh, they, were, they were not to be a part. But if you remember, Jesus has been making statements all along the way regarding the fact that what had typically been assumed as far as who was in and who was out was a little different. And he, he's been speaking of the fact that they really shouldn't be taking for granted what they had always had taken for granted, the bloodlines, the family of origin, their ethnicity or their piety and religiosity. Those are not a part of the equation. And you add to that the growing numbers of people who had been following, the growing numbers that have been coming alongside and listening, and then the battle lines that have been drawn between those who believe Him and those who reject Him, it makes sense that this question in particular would come about. It was understandable. But interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't answer the question like we would answer the question probably, or why, the way we think He would answer the question. Um, and, and He doesn't just answer the person asking. He answers and, and talks to everybody, right? The answer goes out to them all. And he doesn't give a simple yes or no, and he also doesn't give a specific number, so there's nothing about 144,000 or anything like that. But what he does is he, he, he shifts the external focus of the fate of others, and he turns that inward. And he basically says, look, I, I tell you what, rather than concern yourself with the salvation of others, take a minute and assess your own heart. Rather than ask who will be saved or how many will be saved or will everyone be saved, the question you should be asking is, will I be saved? And you need to ask these questions because there is an exclusivity to salvation. He said, the door to salvation is narrow and many, many will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house is risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. In other words, he shares three restrictions Right, three restrictions in regards to this door that he's speaking of. Number one is it, the door is restricted in regards to its nature. Right? It's a narrow door. It's not broad and wide. It's a single door. It's not a double door. 
and this door has, it's precise. It has been set as the door of entrance. This is the door to come in. It's also restricted in regards to its scope. Not everyone is going to be able, not everyone is going to enter because not everyone is going to be able to enter. And then it's also restricted in regard to its availability. It's only open temporarily. It will be shut. Actually, it will be slammed shut. And it's going to be shut just the way it was opened and by the same person that opened it, right? It's going to be shut from the inside by the master. And notice that that entrance to the door, he says it's not based on geographic proximity. It's not based upon social partiality. It's not based upon theological proclivity or even relational familiarity. It's based upon personal receptivity. He said it's just being near Him and having followed Him on the road to Jerusalem or having eaten at the same banquets or having heard Him teach and preach or having had outward contact with Him would not secure their entrance. The only way to enter, the only possible way to enter was if he knew them personally. And that means if, he, if they have knowledge, right? They, they personally have knowledge of him and, and they've come through by humbly listening to and responding to and believing upon and abiding in him. And notice too, that those who do not enter are left in anguish. They're in anguish due to their being on the outside. There will be constant remorse, regret, and mourning, and even defiance. So when we put all that together, there are four things that, that Jesus wants them to see and wants us to see. Right? First is, he's the door. Right? He says so in John 10. I am the door. He's the way of salvation. He's the only one through whom others can enter the kingdom. It's through him and his work and his cross that salvation is possible. Forgiveness is only possible through his shed blood through Him and His atoning work. It's about Him. It's about His life. It's about His death. It's about His burial. And it's about His resurrection that secures salvation. Nothing else. Secondly, He wants us to see that not everyone will enter through Him. Not everyone will be saved. Some will choose not to enter. Others will seek to enter, but they're going to seek to enter through another door. Through a door that maybe they've created or that they believe they can open on their own. Or a door that they've been told, right? It's another door that they believe will lead to the same place. Because all doors lead to the same place. Some are going to hesitate, and they're going to put off entering, and they're going to miss the opportunity because the door is going to be closed. Some are going to, some are going to think they're already in, 
Or some are going to think that, that in is, entering in is automatic because they've, they know all the right things, they've said all the right things, they've done all the right things, and so they, they're definitely in. They're, they're, they're going to be in when the banquet begins, but actually they're going to find themselves on the outside. The door will have been closed, and they'll be on the outside looking in. Thirdly, we see that entrance again is only possible through believing in Him and receiving His invitation to enter. Remember what He said back in chapter 5. In chapter 5, He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So entering the kingdom is only possible as a sinner humbly acknowledges his sin and repents of their sin and turns in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about believing in Him alone that saves. And then finally we see that, that not entering and being left on the outside is, results in an eternity of misery and regret. Now, before I move on, a couple of points. I I usually save the takeaways to the end, but I'm going to do this a little differently this week. And and I want us to think about a couple things from this first point. And I want to speak to those directly, to those in the room who may not believe, who may not be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've come tonight, and you're not trusting in Him for your salvation. You're not looking to Him. You haven't repented of your sins. You haven't um, turned to Him in faith. The invitation for you tonight, instead of doing it at the end and doing it at the table, which we'll do again, the invitation for you tonight is straight from verse 24. Strive to enter the door of salvation before it's too late. Strive to enter the door. And this doesn't mean, this striving doesn't mean that you have to work your way or merit your way to salvation. That's impossible. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're not assured of your salvation, the striving simply means that tonight I want to encourage you to continue in your striving to understand the gospel. Bear down, as my father-in-law used to say, in understanding what the truth of the gospel is. Continue to come and continue to attend the worship services that we have here. Continue to come and to listen to the Word read and to listen to the Word preached. Continue to come and and, and keep listening. Keep praying. Keep praying, asking the Lord to give you ears to hear and to give you sight to see. Continue asking the Lord, change my heart so that I might hear, so that I might appraise and apprehend the Gospel. Because there's no other way of salvation than through Christ. He is the narrow way. Listen to these words from Philip Ryken. He says, the problem is not God. The problem is not the door. The problem is the sinner who refuses to use it. It's God's house, and He has every right to make His own door. He's gracious How gracious He is to open a door for sinners at all. And how gracious Jesus is to invite us to enter. So then He says this, understand this. 
The reason He tells us that the door is narrow is not to keep us out, but that we will find our way through. Through the preaching of the Word, Christ is inviting you tonight to come. He has revealed the narrow way and He is inviting you to come through it. And rather than ask ourselves or to struggle with the fact that there's only one way, let's praise the Lord that there is a way. It may only be one way, but there is a way. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now secondly, the second point, I want to, boys and girls, I want, what did they used to say, one, two, three eyes on me? Uh, specifically for you guys tonight, all right? Uh, Adults, I want you to listen to these questions because they are questions you should probably ask as well. But kiddos, I want you to to listen to what I'm about to say, all right? Of course, you're always listening to everything, but you get what I mean. This is for you, right? Um, Many of those that Jesus was talking to here, they, they were in what we call a community of faith. They were a part of the external community of faith. In other words, they were born into Jewish families and they therefore were a part of the nation of Israel and God had made a covenant with the nation of Israel. And so they were benefactors of that covenant. They were a part of that covenant. And so they had all the rights and responsibilities of being a part, just like their moms and dads did. But Jesus in this passage, he was warning them, everybody that was listening, he was warning them that if they didn't respond to him, and if they didn't place their faith in him and trust in him, they who were on the inside would be moved to a place of being outside. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But just, he wanted them to know that their salvation was not based upon who their parents were, or their faith of their parents. Uh, it wasn't based upon whether, the, whether or not they went to church. Right? Their salvation was based upon, it wasn't based upon any of the outward privileges, only the inward privileges. Right? It was based upon their salvation. In, uh, their salvation was based on uh, their faith in Christ. Now, I want you to know that all of you, boys and girls, have been blessed Um, even beyond the original ones in our story, you have been blessed beyond measure because you have been, you are a gift from the Lord to your parents. And they, and they are Christian parents, they have been, they have been given to you by the Lord as a gift. So God has seen fit to, to bring you together and give you to one another. And as a result, right, you are, as you, you, because they are, you are members of our church. You are a part of this community of faith called Christ Church. And as a result, you are, you have all the rights and and privileges of being a member. So your parents bring you uh, to worship every week. They're bringing you up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Right? They're, they're um, praying with you and praying for you. Uh, 
they're catechizing you and teaching you the things of the Lord. They're teaching you about God and about yourself and about sin and about salvation that's found in Christ alone. They bring you to worship every week and we sing together and you're hearing the word read like tonight with Mr. Saunders and you're hearing the word preached right now uh, by me. Uh, we sing together. Um, you hear the prayers. Some of you have, uh, most of you have been baptized, right? And you've received the mark. God has marked you as his. Some of you are coming to the table. And all of those things are wonderful things. And those, again, are privileges. But I, want you, but I, but I need to ask you some questions. Because I, I don't want you to take those privileges for granted. I, I don't want you uh, to assume that you're saved simply because you do all those things and all those things are true. I want to ask you these questions. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you have a personal relationship with Him? Have you acknowledged your sin? Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned to faith in Christ? Are you looking to Him for your salvation? Him alone for your salvation? Are you looking to Him and, and His sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you looking to Christ, the one to whom your baptism and the Lord's Supper points? And I want you to go home and talk to, to your parents about that, about those questions. And again, adults in the room, those questions are for all of us because we can all take those privileges for granted. Can we not? Well, in verses 29 to 30, Jesus moves from exclusivity to inclusivity, right? Um, he says this, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table or at table in the kingdom of God and behold, some are last who will be first and some who are first will be last. So while the door was narrow and not everyone would enter, many would, many will enter, but the news is shocking to them as they're listening to him because what he said is those who are on the outside are going to be moved on the inside and those who are on the inside are going to be moved to the outside. Those at the front of the line are moving to the back and those from the back of the line are moving to the front. And boys and girls, you know what it's like if you've been standing in line and you've been messing around in the front of the line and the teacher comes along and says, hey, you need to move to the back of the line and somebody else moves up front. You don't like that. They wouldn't have liked what was going on here. They wouldn't have liked what he was saying. It's what's called, what many call the great reversal. And first, he's saying that salvation was no longer simply being offered to Israel, right? Salvation was being offered to both Jew and Gentile alike. Jews were the insiders, Gentiles were the outsiders. Now the Gentiles were being welcomed in, and the Jews who were resting on their ethnic laurels, so to speak, would be cast out. The banquet table and the marriage supper of the Lamb was not going to have, is not going to have ethnic boundaries. Gentiles are going to join Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. That's why Paul says that those who were alienated, you'll remember this from our study of Ephesians, those who were alienated in the, um, from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise and who were far off were being brought near. Being brought in. 
So salvation was being offered to every tribe, nation, and tongue. And people were going to come from all four corners of the earth, then and now, continue to come from all four corners to come through the narrow door, to find salvation through the one narrow door who is Christ. And secondly, many with pedigree and position and, and power and prestige Right? They're going to be, move again from the front of the line where they were standing and attempting to lead everybody and they were going to be moved to the back and the disenfranchised and, and uh, the downcast, um, the oppressed. Right? They're, they're going to be brought to the front. The marginalized, they're all going to be brought to the front. So while Jesus is most definitely exclusive in regard in, in preaching an exclusive salvation. He is also extremely inclusive. And he's inclusive in the fact that he's proclaiming that anyone and everyone who comes to the door and seeks to come through the door and desires to enter will not be cast out. That's why Paul says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, and all are one in Christ. Salvation is for the least, last, and the lost. Salvation isn't based on ethnicity or socioeconomic status. It's not for the best and the brightest, the, you know, the most brilliant. As a matter of fact, the, the most who, or, or those who appear to be uh, the least likely may in fact be the most likely and vice versa because of the inclusivity. And brothers and sisters, that is good news for us. Think about this. In Paul's words, not many of us were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, we are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." We're foolish and weak. We're paupers. Paul says we're not. You ever been called not? We're just not. But he claimed us as his own. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The writer of Hebrews, as we studied, you'll remember, says despite our sinfulness, despite our frailty, despite our failures, despite our faithlessness, he not only does not shy away from us. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. It's astounding. He who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one through whom all things were created, the one for whom all things were created, the one who is before all things and in whom all things hold together, the one who is the head of the body, the church, the one who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the one who is, who is preeminent, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, became a servant took on flesh, born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
He who is first became last for you and for me. For sinners like us and for all who would call upon the name of the Lord. He came to serve, not to, not to be served. He came to be a ransom for many. We're benefactors of that inclusive salvation. And there are many others just like us waiting to hear, needing to hear that message. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Third point. Last point, the antinomy of salvation. And just for the sake of time, I'm not going to read those verses. Hans has read those for us. You can go back and read those. I just want to simply summarize them. And there are three things that we need to see. Those verses reveal three things to us. And first is what I've titled this point is the antinomy of salvation. The antinomy of salvation is God's sovereignty in salvation and man's responsibility in salvation. Right? They're both true. They're apparent contradictions, but they are not. They're both true. We know from the whole of Scripture that God is sovereign in salvation. He chose a people prior to the foundation of the world to be His. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish the work necessary to save us. And then He, the Father and the Son, sent the Spirit to apply that salvation to us by raising us from spiritual death to life, regenerating us, granting us faith. And drawing us to the Father. And we know from John chapter 6 that all that come to Jesus, all that the Father has given to Jesus, He is not going to lose one. He will not lose one that turns to Him in faith. All of that, we, we know that to be true. But in this passage, we not only see Jesus unafraid of Herod. right? He's unafraid of Herod. Why? Because... Herod's the threat of death by Herod, Jesus has no time for. He knows he's going to die in Jerusalem. So he's not threatened by Herod, so he's not persuaded to go in another direction. He has set his face toward Jerusalem. He is on the way. But we not only see that that persistence and that dedication to to finish what, what he had come to do, but we also see the people rejecting the free offer, the genuine, indiscriminate, and free offer of the gospel. They reject, in the words of one commentator, because of their rejection, what he says, man can never blame God for his or her own unbelief. God leaves us free to follow the defiant rebellion of our own sinful hearts. And if we do not come to Christ, it is not because God has not invited us, but because we will not come. And we struggle with that antinomy. But like, like Spurgeon said, there are two ends of the same cord that meet at the throne of God. And we're to trust in both. Believe in both. Secondly, this passage reveals God's heart. God loves His people. He desires to draw them in, to protect them, to care for them, to nurture them lovingly and tenderly. He's faithful and, and long-suffering in that endeavor. 
He's always been willing to save. Paul says in 1 Timothy that he is moved with compassion and desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Peter says that he does not wish that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. It's the heart of God. And then finally, the passage revealed Jesus' lament. We lamented earlier, right? We lamented sin as a whole. Not only ours and our individual sins, but sin as a whole. Our sins not in part, but the whole, right? Lamenting all of those things. And we see Jesus lamenting over this repeated pattern of pushing back of rebellion, of not being willing to respond, of pushing back against the love and care and protection that he desired to offer. And, and Jesus, just the lament is powerful. He, he's saddened by the fact that they wouldn't repent and believe. Right? He also revealing the heart of God. So here's the final, final takeaway. I want to quote Dr. Machen again. He says this, The Christian way of salvation is narrow as long as the church chooses to let it remain narrow. The name of Jesus is discovered to be strangely adapted to men of every race and every kind of previous education. And the church has ample means with promises of God's Spirit to bring the name of Jesus to all. If therefore... This way of salvation is not offered to all. It is not the fault of the way of salvation itself, but the fault of those who fail to use the means that God has placed in their hands. The exclusivity of Christ, brothers and sisters, regardless of what others will tell you, the exclusivity of Christ is not a hindrance to our going and fulfilling the Great Commission of taking the gospel to all nations. It's not. Neither is the antinomy of salvation. Nor does the inclusivity of salvation need to be changed. The exclusivity, inclusivity, and antinomy of salvation work in perfect harmony to provide a foundation and hope for our ongoing gospel work. We have a message that salvation is available. And it's available by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. There is one way of salvation. But that message is for all people. Remember our, the parable of the sower. Indiscriminate in our casting. And God has promised to use that message of the gospel, of the work of Christ. He's, he's promised to use that gospel to draw men to himself. He's promised to save those who are His. And I think we have all that down. But if I might be so bold to say is I think if there was something that we as Reformed folk need to work on or, or need to develop a little bit more of, and I, I believe it's compassion for the lost. We may be missing the com compassion for the loss and the, that steadfastness to remain faithful in our genuine and indiscriminate and free sharing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus.
So my encouragement is that we would all pray and, 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 and ask for, continually pray and ask for that compassion that would not only cause us to deeply lament sin, but it would cause us to see those who are in sin and who are perishing. And that we would have a desire for them to be inside and not left outside. And that it would cause us to proclaim the work, the person and work of the only one who can save them. Let's pray together. Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love, lay it up on our hearts and practice it in our lives. Water the hearts of those who have heard your word preached and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness for your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray. Amen.